From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in this hour, Haiti is back on the front page, at least in the New York Times, our national newspaper of record. And it's not because of what's happening there right now. The Times has published the results of an investigation into the history of Haiti's forced payments to France following Haiti's successful slave revolution and their establishment of the world's first black republic at the time of the French Revolution, Amy Willens will report. But first, the next six months are crucial to determining what happens to American democracy in 2024. Pennsylvania is a key. John Nichols will explain in a minute. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The next six months are crucial to determining what happens to American democracy in 2024. Republicans are preparing to challenge the popular vote in many states they control by empowering state legislatures to pick electors for the Electoral College rather than voters. To do that, they also need to elect Republican governors And Pennsylvania is a crucial battleground right now. It's a swing state, voted for Trump in 2016, Biden in 2020. In Pennsylvania, the governor appoints the secretary of state who administers elections in the state and signs off on the certification of the state's electors. And now in Pennsylvania, we have a truly scary Republican candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano. He won the Republican primary there last week. Uh, John Nichols joins us now to tell us who is Doug Mastriano. It's good to be with you, John. And that is a question that Americans are going to be asking themselves a lot over the next few months. And if he becomes governor of Pennsylvania, Americans are going to know who Doug Mastriano is, and they're not going to be very comfortable with that reality. Because Doug Mastriano is, uh, he's a very interesting guy. He's a military vet who then uh, taught uh, at a military college. And he's smart. I mean, he's not, he's not a guy who doesn't know his way around things. But uh, he is extreme at a level that we have rarely seen get to this, this higher echelon of, of American politics. He is a Christian nationalist um, who... Uh, really does clearly blur the lines between church and state on a host of issues and is extremely blunt about saying that if he gets to power, if he becomes governor of Pennsylvania on day one, uh, they will jettison protections for LGBTQ folks, for trans kids, that they will rewrite school curriculums to eliminate uh, critical race theory, which isn't taught anyway, but they will, they will make sure that, it, that nothing even akin to it is taught. And, um, and you keep running down sort of the entire sort of religious right, uh, extreme right stances on a host of issues. But what he's really known for is uh, as a 
2020 presidential election result denialist. He uh, absolutely, and I think to a far deeper extent than Donald Trump, uh, rejects the results of the 2020 election. Now, that in itself is a big deal, right? This is somebody potentially a governor of a major state who says, nope, it, you know, Biden didn't win. Trump won. Um, now, you don't even get that among very, very conservative Republican governors. In, you know, remember in Arizona, Ducey, uh, at the end of the day, he said, yeah, you know, we're not, we're not going to throw this stuff out. In Georgia, Kemp, similarly. And so you end up in a situation where you have kind of a, a relatively, relatively unique figure as the governor of an American state. But then there's something deeper, John, and that is the fact that he has clearly acted upon this, this sentiment, on, upon this view. In 2020, he uh, led the fight in Pennsylvania to reject the results of the election, which Joe Biden won by 80,000 votes, which, you know, on balance is a pretty good victory. Seems like um, a lot to me. Yeah, you know, uh, to reject that, that result and to have the legislature name the electors from the state of Pennsylvania to essentially, um, you know, just create a result uh, out of the Republican caucus in the state legislature. That did not succeed because amazingly enough, even in the Republican caucus in the Pennsylvania state legislature, there are a few sane people. Um, but then when he failed there, he used his own funds, funds from allies to organize buses to go to the January 6th Stop the Steal rally. And that's a rally at which Trump said, and we will recall, fight like hell to overturn the results of the election. And then as the people Trump told to fight like hell went to actually implement the coup. And remember, it is a coup if you throw out the results of an election and install the loser in power. They went to the Capitol to do that. Uh, Doug Mastriano went with them. He didn't just stay at the rally. He went down to the Capitol. And there is video um, that appears to show Doug Mastriano crossing the police lines at the Capitol, uh, literally on January 6th, on those critical days. And so effectively, what you've got here is an insurrectionist uh, who, you know, yes, he says he, he doesn't uh, believe the results and you have to fear what he might do. But this is somebody who has clearly acted upon it at a level that, uh, that puts him in a relatively small circle. Uh, and to have someone like that as a governor, gubernatorial candidate is quite amazing. The Democratic candidate he will be running against in November is Josh Shapiro, the state attorney general, longtime Democratic liberal in that state. He really has to win the race for governor of Pennsylvania in November. So that contest is going to be a Christian nationalist versus a Jewish liberal. What will it take for Josh Shapiro to win? Well, there are some people who believe simply uh, the results of the Republican primary will be sufficient for Josh Shapiro to win, <laughs> because um, Pennsylvania is a complex state. It is relatively closely divided. But elections in Pennsylvania tend to be decided by a suburban vote around Philadelphia. And what you end up with is Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are very Democratic cities. Um, there are some other Democratic bastions around the state. You have a lot of rural areas that are very, very Republican, and there's a lot of rural Pennsylvania. And then you have some, you know, small cities that are pretty Republican. 
the suburbs of Philadelphia, which are very, very well populated. Remember, it's Philadelphia, one of the largest cities in America. It's suburbs. A lot of people live there. Um, they were historically quite Republican, but they were moderate, even liberal Republican. As the uh, Republican Party has moved to the extreme right, they have become increasingly Democratic. The theory is, the thinking is, that Mastriano is so extreme that uh, those Republican or historically Republican suburbs are very likely to go to Josh Shapiro and give him a good chance of winning. But as Josh Shapiro says, and he's right to say this, um, there was, the theory was that Donald Trump would never be elected president of the United States. And so at the end of the day, there is a lot of concern in Pennsylvania about you know, this election cycle, what it could mean, what will, what will play out. Uh, I will say that, that in talking to Republicans, uh, sane Republicans, and, and these include very, very conservative folks who are, you know, or even Republican strategist types, do not think they got the best, uh, you know, deal from the deck of cards when they got Doug Mastriano as their candidate. Well, there's another kind of battleground this November that's preparing the way for 2024. Trump's former campaign strategist Steve Bannon has defined it for us, quote, the path to save the nation, he said recently, is very simple. It's going to go it's going to go through the school boards, close quote. They hope to mobilize supporters and increase turnout by fighting this culture war in very local contests. And they're investing big money from conservative donors in this effort. Uh, John, you write in The Nation, this is not a fight progressives are destined to lose at the local level. Although we all were shocked and dismayed last November because of the results in Virginia, where the Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin upset the former Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe in the campaign for governor, campaigning around the theme of parents' rights. That's what has us worried about school boards. Remind us about first about Terry McAuliffe's defeat. Well, Terry McAuliffe was a lousy candidate, um, and that's an important thing to understand. You know, one of the problems we have with media coverage of politics is that it tends to kind of dumb everything down to uh, one race, one result and say, OK, this tells us everything we need to know about these issues. So in Virginia, uh, in the fall of 2019, the Republicans ended up with a candidate, Glenn Youngkin, who was an incredibly wealthy, you know, corporate finance kind of guy who they dressed up in a sweater vest. And, you know, marched out there as a kind of a dad running for governor. And uh, his big theme was parents' rights. You know, it's like they're taking away our ability to decide what our kids are going to be taught in school. And so, you know, he got some traction with that. There's, there's no question. Uh, but I, I think it's important to understand there were a lot of other factors in play. Terry McAuliffe handled the issue terribly. He literally kind of said, yeah, I don't, <laughs> by and large, I kind of don't want the parents around. And which was just not a very good message and not not even what McAuliffe himself believed. You know, it's just he, he had a bad uh, misstatement, really, in a debate and he didn't really ever explain it well. But on a deeper level, there were other issues in play. I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of issues in play. And at the end of the result or end of the day, McAuliffe lost to Yonkin. So suddenly we had this big explosion of, of theorizing on the part of our pundit class, which was that, oh, well, that's it. These school issues are going to destroy Democrats. It's the end of the day. Boy, when, uh, when the elections come in 2022, 
Democrats are going to be swept from office by parents who are furious that their children are being taught the actual history of the United States <laughs> or that or that they're, you know, that their LGBTQ kids might be treated with a marginal level of respect and, and human decency in the schools. You know, it's just not the case. That's not this this so-called parents revolt is not happening uh, at the school board level at the in the way that I think a lot of our media would suggest. And I went out actually around the country and went to some communities where there are fights over school board races, went to places, talked to people in places where some of these battles have played out. And what I heard again and again and again is that there's a parent's divide on these issues. There are some parents who you know, don't want to teach the real history of the United States. And so they're all going on about critical race theory. There are some parents who are unsympathetic to uh, circumstance of LGBTQ kids and particularly trans kids. There are parents who don't like uh, certain books like uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved in their school libraries, but they aren't necessarily the majority. And in fact, in school districts across the country, we've seen cases where uh, very progressive candidates have been reelected to the school board or elected to the school board running on a message that we want to support public education and we want it to be an education that respects diversity and inclusiveness that does teach the full history of the United States in a realistic and honest way. And this isn't just in liberal college towns. This is happening in suburban areas that are swing areas. So even one of the counties I profile or one of the places I profile, Mequon-Thinesville, Wisconsin, is in a county that voted for Trump. And yet when they tried to recall this local school board, um, they failed the, the right, the conservatives failed terribly. And so bottom line is, there's a much deeper story here. And as is so often the case, if Democrats at the upper level would study what grassroots activists are actually doing at the school board level, they would learn that the fact that you can win on, on support for public education and for a progressive approach to public education. Uh, it's not a losing issue, it's a winning issue. But as is so often the case, Democrats often find ways to screw it up. Another place, though, that we worried about was San Francisco, a place that had a recall of school board members that succeeded. And this, of course, is the bluest of the blue cities in America. Uh, and the, the people who were recalled on the school board were the, were the progressives. This was unprecedented in a place like California. What happened there? But see, that's a very interesting thing. And I write about it in the, in the piece. Um, San Francisco doesn't have a recall or didn't have a recall like um, most other places. In most places where you do a recall, you force the candidates, the, the sitting members of the school board to run against other candidates. So you have a choice between you know, progressives and conservatives, people who don't wanna teach critical race theory, people who, or who, who claim critical race theory is being taught, people who uh, don't want programs for trans youth, people who uh, wanna censor the library on one side and then more progressive folks on the other. San Francisco, what you had was uh, a case of, do you want to keep these school board members in this place? Just that was it, right? Or do you want to empty, you want to move them out and let the reasonably liberal mayor appoint new members of the school board? And um, the school board members who were there were controversial. They had renamed the names of a lot of schools. Um, and there were just folks, I, I think a lot of parents there who thought they were spending a lot more time on renaming schools than they were on 
um, you know, making sure the kids get back to school during COVID and, and, and a host of other issues. So there were a lot of gripes on the ground. And when I talked to folks about what happened in San Francisco, what I found was there were many liberals who supported the recall um, yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. And so what you end up with is a situation where you had liberals, you had diverse communities that were saying, we don't like these school board members and we would like to see them replaced by somebody else. They have been replaced and they've been replaced by pretty liberal folks. Yeah. And so San Francisco was one of those cases where our national media too often doesn't dig in and do the actual story of what happened. It just does a top line story that fits with assumptions. When you dig in at a deeper level, you find that those headlines that say, you know, San Francisco is an alarm bell for Democrats or San Francisco's, you know, a, a, a warning signal for Democrats. No. Um, what San Francisco was, was a distinct case. And it's not one to be neglected. There are lessons to be learned, of course, in, in any recall or any situation like that. But I always use the example of New Hampshire on the other side of the country. In roughly the same time, but at the same time San Francisco was having its votes, New Hampshire had school board elections. And they had conservatives there that were trying to replace liberal school board members all over the state. And overwhelmingly, the progressives won. They won even in some of the most conservative places. In fact, in the Merrimack Valley School District, they actually had a proposal to ban the teaching of critical race theory. Now, it was explained that they don't actually teach critical race theory there, but it was a deeper, the, the deeper meaning of it was to kind of bar a deep, true teaching of American history. Well, in that school district, it was overwhelmingly rejected. The parents said, no, we do want our kids to learn what <laughs> we do want them to learn real history. And it happened in school district after school district after school district. But we did not see national media headlines saying New Hampshire results are an alarm bell for Republicans. <laughs> New Hampshire results send up a flare of alert for Republicans. And so what we've had, frankly, is really bad coverage of a very deep you know, issue that you know people do care a lot about their schools. They care very much about how their kids are educated. But when you go deeper and you look at what's really happening, what you find is that overwhelmingly, uh, in a lot of parts of this country, not every part, I'm not saying every race, but in a lot of parts of this country, parents are willing to stand up for public education and for quality public education that supports humane, inclusive, and diverse approaches rather than that have this narrow kind of right-wing, frankly, I think in many cases, anti-public education approach. John Nichols wrote about school board politics and about Doug Mastriano for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. Great to be with you, John. Thank you so much. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Haiti is back on the front page, at least in the New York Times, our national newspaper of record, and it's not because of what's happening there now. The Times has published the results of an investigation into the history of Haiti's forced payments to France starting 
more than 200 years ago. It was an immense amount of money, which France said it deserved as compensation for Haiti's revolution and independence and slave emancipation at the time of the French Revolution. For comment, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and an award-winning writer about Haiti. Her most recent book is Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. The reason we care about Haiti, we always remind listeners, is not only because it's a desperately poor country that's close to the United States, it's also because Haiti had the first successful slave revolution in world history and because Haiti established the world's first black republic at the beginning of the 19th century. And then, then the French government required that Haiti reimburse France for the loss of its, what it claimed to be, its own slave property and land. This is not a news story, but I don't think it's ever been on the front page of the New York Times before. What, what is their focus? What is their central theme? Yeah, it's barely been in the New York Times at all. Their central theme is how the Haitians, having prosecuted a successful revolution against Napoleon's armies, were then told by France and backed this threat backed by French warships in the um, waters around Haiti in the, I think it was the 1820s, that Haiti would have to pay an indemnity to France, an independence debt, the New York Times calls it for its successful revolution. This is the first time Haiti has many firsts, some good, some bad. This is the first time the victor in a war has ever been forced to pay an indemnity to the loser. Obviously the Haitian president Boyer at the time did not have to pay that, but if he didn't pay it, he was being threatened with a renewal of battle against Haiti by France possible victory by France and a renewal then of enslavement of the Haitian people. He was also being threatened much more immediately with France's refusal to acknowledge Haiti's existence and thus uh, with an impossibility of Haiti entering into world markets and having an economy of any kind. So he agreed to pay an astonishing sum of money to France. And it took them more than 100 years to complete the payments. It started in the 1820s and it finally ended all of the payments, all of the interest through all of the banks when Haiti ran out of money and had to have loans to pay France. It ended up in 1948, 1948. That's even in some people's memories who are on this show today. Yes, it is. And some not. Thank you for that. So, and the New York Times, connects this story of 200 years of massive payments by Haiti to France to the present situation. They write, for more than a century, Haiti has been labeled a disaster, a basket case, a place so destitute, lacking, and lawless that it needs constant rescuing. The assassination of the president in his bedroom, the kidnappings in the capital, the Haitian migrants heading to the United States, they all point to a country in a seemingly endless vortex of despair that the world's great powers have not managed to fix. But the New York Times says the documents and financial records that we have reviewed show how much of Haiti's misery has been brought about by the outside world and how often intervention has been portrayed as a helping hand while it really wasn't. 
Now, for a listener of our, of our program, for readers of your book, for people who are historians of this period, there's none of this is news. So my question is, why is the New York Times doing this now? What okay. is going? Okay, okay. First of all, I had to press my mute button while you were reading that so I wouldn't laugh out loud when you read it because I'm very grateful to the New York Times for having done this. I think it's fantastic and wonderful that readers who were deprived for the entire existence of the New York Times uh, from hearing what we have all known for so long are now hearing it from the New York Times because when the Times says it, it then becomes true. Whereas when they refuse to say it for all my 30 years of covering Haiti and longer, it isn't true. And who are the people who've reported that story in that way, by the way, that you just read from the New York Times? The New York Times. So, and others, of course, I don't single out the New York Times, but they're the paper of record. They take the lead. They're responsible in great measure for Haiti's trials and tribulations being reported without historic context, especially without the context of this giant indemnity to France that I certainly have been talking about for a long time. And I did not discover it, nor did I ever thump my chest and say how great I was to discover it. No, I found out from Haitian historians that this was the case from reading their books. They write books in Haiti. You would not know that necessarily from the New York Times, from reading all their books and scholarship I learned about this, and um, I'm grateful to the Times for having gone after it. Yes. Why? <laughs> okay. Why, given their long history of ignoring this story, has the New York Times decided to make amends, to reverse course? I have some theories about this. Let's thank George Floyd for his great sacrifice, Good. first of all. George Floyd is now, as far as I'm concerned, a martyr of the Haitian Revolution. Without Black Lives Matter, this story would not be reported the way it's being reported. Excellent. That brings up some questions, of course, as to further reporting by the New York Times. Note, it was Ta-Nehisi Coates' story um, on reparations that did not appear in the New York Times, but appeared in the Atlantic. The New York Times has some explaining to do to Black Lives Matter about why they're not publishing a piece on Black Americans' right to reparations of this great length and this great historic research into how much is really owed and what it means. But we who study Haiti are very grateful and we're grateful to George Floyd. So let's look a little more closely at the reporting that the New York Times is running all week in the print edition and in a gigantic piece on the website. The first is called The Roots of Haiti's Misery, Advancing the Thesis, which they have finally decided uh, to <laughs> has some merit make amends for their past failures the second section is called how a french bank captured haiti what's this one about so that's about the uh french banks and how they first of all they dealt with the indemnity it's just so hard to understand how this would happen in those days this was the first time actually a poor country paid a debt to a rich country also you could look at it that way just paid off uh, money, uh, the way the third world, as it used to be called, had to pay off money to the International Development Bank and the World Bank over years and years. So it wasn't that the Haitian government had these giant coffers filled with gold that they then gave to France. It was little ladies in the countryside. They had to, every time they paid for something, they had to bring their pennies to pay for this indemnity, to pay for basically being having the right to their own bodies. 
to put it in blunt terms. And the French banks recouped all this money. And as the money ran out and the little ladies and the men of Haiti could no longer pay their little monies, Haiti had to take out loans to finish paying off this indemnity. And those loans bore interest and they had to pay off the interest. And that's where how the French banks came to own Haiti after the French had owned Haiti. And one of the really interesting things in the piece is how so much of this money at the beginning went to the people in France who had actually lost their plantations. So they owned Haitian land, they owned Haitians. Then when the revolution came, they were paid off through this indemnity and they made millions of dollars off this indemnity. And their descendants, most of them had no idea when the New York Times found out who got the money, had no idea that this was where their great fortunes came from so that they have a castle in you know, the Alsatian countryside, a castle in the Loire, a mansion outside of Paris. They didn't know that it was off the, the bodies and the blood of the Haitian slaves. They just thought, oh, we're rich. And then the next section of the New York Times is titled, Invade Haiti, Wall Street Urged the U.S. Obliged. What's that one about? That's about how um, the American banks also participated in this, uh, what I would call massive global blood sucking of the Haitian Republic. And their banks, the National City Bank especially, came into Haiti along with the uh, National Bank of Haiti, which was really an extension of the French banks. And it too offered loans to Haitians and then uh, added interest to those and added to this horrible burden that the country could never get out from under. And when anyone raised a voice about this in Haiti, the Americans didn't like it and they wanted to make sure that nothing would interrupt this continual flow of funds. And so indeed they did invade Haiti, um, the American Marines, Partly, one hears from the New York Times and has heard in the past at the behest of Wall Street and the National City Bank. And then the last section is titled Demanding Reparations in Ending Up in Exile. Who was it that ended up in exile? I love that title. It's uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. It's one of those things where um, papers like the New York Times liked to brag at the time Aristide was first elected in the first free and fair elections, monitored with the help of American President Jimmy Carter, uh, about how great the United States was in bringing free and fair elections to Haiti. Yet twice, Aristide was ousted for power because he was progressive and outspoken and irritating. And uh, once under the man I like to call Papa Bush, and once under the man I like to call Baby Bush, after <laughs> the dictator Francois Papadoc Duvalier and his yes. child Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier. But the reason that last bit is called uh, asking for reparations and ending up in exile is that Aristide, in his second permitted term, brought world attention to the independence debt, the unfairness of it, and the amount of it what would be owed to Haiti by France, what is in fact morally owed to Haiti by France <laughs> and how much it is. And he had a whole team of researchers, not unlike the team of researchers of the New York Times, do a study <laughs> on how much that would be in today's dollars. And then what happened to Aristide after he, he proposed that France should repay Haiti for the, for the reparations? He was ousted. 
the French ambassador went to his house and uh, an American diplomat went to his house and uh, they told him he had to leave. They said, well, you could stay, but there's a, there's a coup d'etat being planned against you. We don't know if you'll survive. <laughs> they said, write a letter of resignation, which he didn't exactly do. And then they stuck him on a plane and he ended up in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Anyway, in the heart of Africa. Unlike his predecessor in being ousted by the Americans, Jean-Claude Duvalier, who ended up in Paris. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, the Times does have a long essay on sources of the sort of conventional historical kind of the dozens and dozens of books in English and French that they consulted. They, they, they claim, I think correctly, that the most original part of their investigation is the new effort they made to calculate the amount of money that Haiti actually paid France and their creditors. Uh, let's talk about the amount, the amount of money that they came up with. How much, you, first of all, how much does the New York Times say uh, Haiti paid to France and their creditors? It's something like in today's dollars, $41 billion. $41 billion. billion B, not million, billion. B is in baby. Mm -hmm. How does this number compare with the number that Aristide came up with? Very close. <laughs> the New York Times acknowledges very close. In fact, he may have underestimated a little bit compared to what they found. However, you know, for all the chest beating, they only came up with pretty much the same number Aristide came up with. But I don't want to take away from the New York Times having done this story. I think it's great. It's grand. It's respectful. It's, it's the right thing to do. They perhaps didn't acknowledge all their sources. Everybody in Haiti is complaining about that. And I understand that. And to Haitians, it just seems like unfathomable that the New York Times could be declaring this to be a really new, interesting piece of information when they've known it their whole lives. So, But of course, what Haitian knows is not the same thing as what Americans know. And that's why we're talking about this now. And right. the New York Times then concludes with speculating and talking to people about what Haiti could have been like, what Haiti could be like today if this $41 billion had remained in Haiti. So let's talk about this alternative history of Haiti. It saddens me a lot to even think about it. I mean, some money would have been stolen, of course. Every every government has a right to steal some money. <laughs> but okay. but you know, there would have been money that could have been invested in, first of all, infrastructure by Haitians building their own infrastructure instead of the American occupation forcing enslaved Haitians to build the kinds of roads the American sugar growers needed in Haiti. There could have been money spent on healthcare instead of having, you know, one ophthalmologist per every one million people in Haiti. There could have been money spent on education so that there would be more than one ophthalmologist for every million people in Haiti. But these monies were never spent. They were never had. And it would have made Haiti an independent country instead of cultivating this sick dependence on foreign aid and the, the kindness of strangers, which is never very kind. One other thing, the Times website about Haiti's debt is a gorgeous and wonderful uh, thing to look at. Yes, they've done a wonderful job. First of all, the photographs that they've run, I've never seen before. 
and I've seen, I thought every photograph ever taken of Papa Doc Duvalier, they have two I've never seen before. So that means you're looking at something quite special. They have photographs of some of the documents that they found uh, documenting this debt. They're incredible. And one of the things they've done that I really appreciate, aside from just running the whole thing, is in some places on the digital version, they've kind of simplified their argument. And and that's great because people can look at it easily, see what it means. They don't have to read the whole damn thing unless they're like me. And, <laughs> and, and that's fantastic. I appreciate the simplification. And the other thing they've done, which I love, is they published it in French and in Haitian Creole without a paywall. So, okay, we people in America have to pay the paywall, but the French don't and the Haitians don't. The only little problem that I'm sort of, trying to push buttons about is uh, I'd like to have an audio version in Creole because a lot of people who speak Creole don't read Creole. Even if they read French, they don't really read Creole. So I think that would be a great thing to have on the radio in Haiti is the New York Times version of this story. I mean, <laughs> that might change things. So the kind of explicit message here is summed up in the word reparations. The New York Times does not approach this as on the one hand, on the other hand. Some people say reparations are justified. Other people aren't so sure. Their conclusion is there's $41 billion that France and Wall Street owe, owe to Haiti. We've never really seen anything like this from uh, what we call the mainstream media, I don't think. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it raises so many questions, but they do seem to come down on the side of let France pay. But then doesn't it raise the issue of reparations in the U.S. and let the U.S. pay? Uh, it doesn't really, because they're very clear without saying it, that this is not about the slaves' labor. This is not about what they produced for France. This is simply about the independence debt. It's a very separate thing. Black Americans did not pay an independence debt. Once they were freed, they were freed to try and live in this crazy country as best they could live. But we do owe them reparations for having built the country, just the way France also owes Haitians reparations for having built the country as well as having paid for the revolution. So it's a very mixed bag that the New York Times is kind of avoiding one side of the whole discussion while saying France should pay its reparations, and it should. Amy Willens. Her award-winning recent book about Haiti is Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.